everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Genre Equality Podcast on the Genre Equality channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Isa. Uh, we're here to talk about a lot of big titles here this week because um, movies are up and running again. Um, <laughs> all the blockbusters that have been backed up because of COVID are coming out you know, um, at a relentless pace. Uh, mm. And we're here to catch them all, uh, particularly with one that we've been looking forward to for nearly two years now yeah. uh, is Denis Villeneuve's Dune saga, um, specifically part one, which is the first <laughs> half of the first book. Uh, we'll also be talking about Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which mm-hmm. recently came out. The fifth season of My Hero Academia, which recently wrapped up. Um, a new anime anthology focused on the Star Wars universe. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, Mike Flanagan's new miniseries called Midnight Mass. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as a few other small things. Well, not smaller. Why the Last Man is a very influential comic book. I'll be oh, talking yeah. a, li- a little bit about its adaptation. Uh, available now on FX and Disney+. Plus, Along with Doom Patrol Season 3. Uh, James Wan's new film, Malignant, mm-hmm. uh, the new Candyman, the new Adventure Time, uh, the conclusion to Transformers War for Cybertron, uh, animated series on Netflix. Uh, and finally, I'll be delving into Isaac Asimov's shared u- universe of novels, which, which include the Robot uh, Empire and Foundation series, uh, which all tie together um, yeah. in amazing fashion. <laughs> uh, uh, the reason I'm talking about that is because, of course, the Foundation TV series just kickstarted on Apple TV+. Plus, So I wanted to give you guys uh, a little primer on that before you yep. delve into the show, uh, which I will be reviewing next month uh, once I've seen uh, uh, more, more mm-hmm. of it to, to, to get a judgment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the judgment isn't good as, well, as of now, but um, I'm, giving it, I'm giving it a chance first uh, before, before yeah. I make yeah. my, dec- my decision on it. That's fair. Uh, but one thing that is inspired by Exact as the most Foundation series is the Dune books. Um, which will be our first topic. Then uh, yeah. the adaptation of Dune. Um, ever since Star Wars revolutionized mainstream science fiction cinema, I think filmmakers have flooded the genre with various iterations of, uh, of the Joseph Campbell um, mm-hmm. hero's journey, right? Um, yep. This repeatable structure is kind of known as the monomyth. Um, it's practically a default style of sci-fi slash fantasy storytelling now. So... So commonplace that perceptive viewers can settle into a comfortable, complacent groove. Yeah. What makes Frank Herbert's Dune so special is that it's not only the inspiration for Star Wars and all the space operas that come after, mm-hmm. but that its story is both a crystallization and a repudiation of the hero's journey. Um, and what makes Denny Villeneuve's take on Frank Herbert's colossal masterwork so special is that it manages to take a familiar template the galactic empire, warring houses, political intrigue, <laughs> the chosen one, etc., etc. A template that was fresh in 1965 and yet not very fresh today. Yeah. And yet it manages to make it feel wholly unfamiliar and wondrous because this film's astounding skill, ambition, vision, and artistry mm-hmm. accomplishes that. Um, it feels nothing like the boardroom blockbusters that, uh, that are littering our cinematic landscape today. Um, Villeneuve kind of grants extraordinary breathing room yep. in establishing the quest of Timothy Chalamet's Paul Atreides, who is the burgeoning leader of his aristocratic house primed for the planetary governance of Arrakis, which is a land of sand and spice. Um, two and a half hours sail by, um, never once being weighed down by a large cast of characters mm-hmm. or a vast array of universe-specific details. It never handholds it never settles down for exposition oh, yeah. it just immerses you in the world's environment 
rather than bothering to explain them in clunky exposition. Um, <laughs> this patience is not typically afforded by any other director working on the scale, yeah. um, with the exception of maybe Christopher Nolan. Mm-hmm. Um, Villeneuve grants his audience the time to take in the majesty of his uh, brutalist, futuristic architecture, the intricacy of the costuming, the complexity of the character reactions and relations, uh, and the rapidly shifting political situations in the world of Arrakis. It's a, it's a show-don't-tell kind of film at its peak, and that's especially welcome when everything on show is filmed so beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your takes on Denis Villeneuve's adaptation of Dune? Uh, you're definitely right when you say that it doesn't do any hand-holding. Mm-hmm. Um, despite being a huge fan of the books, and uh, if you guys haven't checked it out, we did an entire episode of Behold. <laughs> just yeah. just going on and on about Dune and, and all its associated uh, uh, mediums and franchises. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, but it definitely doesn't do any of the hand-holding. I think I found uh, myself thinking a lot like, how... Uh, like new peeps who've never read the books have no idea what Dune is, Dune is like. They see the poster, they see Shamale, they see uh, Zendaya, and they're just like, you know what, this this looks pretty good. Let's let's go check that. I'm not really sure how it's it's necessarily possible for them to kind of get into it. Um, mm. But then again, I'm not. I I can't be in their shoes, right? Like I I, I come with the grand expectations of someone who's had this story live in his head for many mm. many years. And also um, grand knowledge that the casual audience doesn't have. Yes, exactly, right? So, like, yeah. on the one hand, I'm in a very... Uh, in, a, in a different... I was about to say privileged position, but not really. I'm in a very different position uh, because, like, what Villeneuve has to do for me here as a, as a fan of the books and, and, and knowing it intimately is that he has to match or, um, or exceed my own headcanon or, or mm. hit, uh, hit imagery. Mm-hmm. Uh, in order for that to kind of work. And I have to say, I was not disappointed. Mm-hmm. I think if there was any director that um, is worth his salt and, and worth, um, you know, taking a shot at doing Dune, it would have been Villeneuve. So I was extremely excited when mm. they announced it all the way back in 2017? Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I've been hyped for this for about four years now. Um, but yeah, it, it doesn't disappoint. I think for many people who, who have read the books, well, if you've just read Dune itself and you're a fan of the, the, the first book, mm-hmm. I, I think there's plenty of here as a fan that you, you know, for you to kind of dive into, for you to kind of like question your initial kind of impressions of that as you are reading versus what you are watching. Uh, there's plenty of here for you to dissect with your friends who've also read the book you yeah. know, or even with your friends who haven't read the book, right? Just to kind of like fill in the gaps, compare notes, debate about whether something worked or it didn't, you know, get excited over. And like this movie in uh, all of its nearly, is it three hours? Yeah, yeah, almost oh, three hours. Yeah, almost three hours runtime, like gives you kind of plenty of that, um, you know. And um, the only thing I think is you got to keep in mind that this is only part one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's no real way to have ended the film in um, ex- in in the kind of like uh, typical climatic ending. Yep. Uh, especially for part one, which is understandable. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that that only makes me excited for part two. 
which yeah. I really hope they green uh, light soon because it seems to be doing much better than any other villain <laughs> franchise so far. Oh, um, way, way better than, yeah. than uh, expectations, you know. Um, if, if you are unfamiliar with the story, let me uh, give you a brief synopsis. Um, on the surface, uh, hmm. the book tells a fairly simple story of a young man uh, growing into a leader, uh, shonen style, uh, during a time <laughs> of war. Um, and like Frank Herbert, Villeneuve invests that tale with an almost mythic importance. Um, a lot has been said about the complexity of Dune, a book whose impossibility to adapt is almost legendary, um, with a story so expensive and a mythology so sprawling um, that even talented filmmakers like um, Jodorowsky, whose version never came to fruition, mm -hmm. and David Lynch, who disowned his 1984 take, um, stumbled in their attempts to capture it. Um, Villeneuve gets it, though. Um, most of it is in the astonishing production design, which you know, very easily and clearly delineates every world and faction with its own visual identity. You know, the, the cool, lush palette of House Atreides mm. in Caladan uh, is totally distinct from the gothic caverns of the Harkonnen homeworld, Gady Prime, and yeah. a world away from, you know, the sizzling expanse of Arrakis. Um, Villeneuve is a visionary filmmaker, and he lets his images do as much of the narrative heavy lifting as the dialogue. In mm -hmm. fact, even more so than the dialogue in some instances. Yeah. Um, the way everything from the page is brought to life here is extraordinary. Um, from the sandworms, to the ornithopters, to the still suits, to the visceral portrayal of the Benny Gesserit voice, mm -hmm. um, Dune evokes a nearly constant jaw on the floor or from the small details and the big ones. The, the sense of scale conjured up is from moment to moment frequently astonishing. The, the camera work is largely wide and stately mm. with lingering shots that let, that let you kind of drink in all the detail of the gorgeous sets and, and bask in the vistas of you know, the galactic uh, visions that Villeneuve is, is inspired by. Um, in one particular shot that sticks in my head, you know, the transport ships bound for Arrakis are oh, yeah. of like an ant-like significance against the deep expanse of space. But at ground level, they are colossal. You know? So that's a, that's a sense of scale that Villeneuve captures there. The visual vastness is also matched mm -hmm. by a great Hans Zimmer score. Um, it is, it is um, I don't know what the technical term is, but, but in my opinion, it is, this is full Zimmer with, with you yeah. know, um, <laughs> um, howling human voices, the chattering drums, and a yeah. whole host of alien sounds. Um, the acting itself is also uniformly excellent, you know, from mm -hmm. Oscar Isaac to Timothy Chalamet to Zendaya's very minor role as Shiny, although she'll definitely have a much bigger one in the next film, um, yep. you know, if, if you go by the books. Um, they may not exactly be who I imagined in my head, but the actors capture the spirit of the characters very well. Yep. Um, special mention must be given to, of course, uh, Rebecca Ferguson. Oh, yes. Lady Jessica, mm -hmm. as she, she seals the movie in every scene. She can be graceful and vulnerable, but also frightening when she needs to be. Yeah. She embodies what kind of Bene Gesserit Lady Jessica is. And for the most part, the story is pretty faithful to barring minor alterations that conflate scenes or shift some plot points here and there. Um, book readers may or may not nitpick at them, but I don't uh, particularly mind simply yeah. because I don't have any alternatives to offer that wouldn't severely affect the already very long pacing of it. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? Uh, I think, hmm, yeah, without without going into spoiler territory, like, uh, as far as the casting goes, 
it's it's spot on, right? Like mm-hmm. outstanding Rebecca Ferguson, outstanding, easily, easily the best kind of casting choice that we've seen so far. Um, yep. and and especially important, I think for um. I think for part one, right? Um, yeah. She doesn't get featured in part two, uh, in the book anyway. Um, mm-hmm. But here's the thing, like on a very personal level, like I've, I never liked Lady Jessica as a character within mm-hmm. the book. I don't think she's particularly well written, right? Mm-hmm. Like she falls off a lot. It's, uh, her, her, her powers are sometimes convenient, um, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I feel like seeing it on screen and seeing like uh, Ferguson's portrayal of it uh, definitely like redeemed that character for me to a much degree because you kind of like she fills up a lot of what's not in the book in mm. a very believable and 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 very human way right mm. uh, which which some is 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 sometimes hard to do when you're reading a book about like you know um teenage boys who are turning into gods like essentially um yep. Yeah, so like shout out to that. I I think like uh our, our boy Timmy really looks the part of Paul mm-hmm. Atreides. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see, you know, just um how he kind of ages with this saga if 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 it continues on for at mm-hmm. least another you know two movies or whatever it is. Uh, mm-hmm. Oscar Isaac's great. Uh, Josh Brolin is apparently Hollywood's understanding of ugly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, like Patrick Stewart. Yeah, right? I mean, like the casting. I think pretty much is is is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. You know. Um. The Elder Skarsgård is a very different vision of what I thought the Baron would be. Uh. Mm. But he plays it to a T in his own way, and it is equally like creepy. Um, yeah, he he takes a lot of uh, out of uh, Apocalypse Now and Marlon Brando. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that, that that particular vibe. Yeah. 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 Um. Yeah. About Bautista, we don't really see much of him. Um. But uh, as I mean, he he plays Beast Raban, right? Like he looks the part. Mm. You know. Um. Zendaya looks beautiful in every scene that she's in. Um. And barely has five words to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it's just a like very very solid cast overall. And I don't really have any like major complaints about that. I I think Moa Moa's casting as Duncan Idaho is kind of inspired. Not mm. the character I saw in my head, uh, mm-hmm. for sure. But it fits and it works. And I think, like, you know, I, I may have written him off because of a lot of other roles, like Aquaman and stuff like that. And when they first announced him, I was like, ooh, that might not quite work. Um, but, but yeah, it works. It's a very, very different Duncan Idaho. Um, mm-hmm. But but somehow they, they really, really made it work. Like, it's a very, very unique character in and of itself from, I think, what a lot of people imagine in their heads. Definitely, um, definitely. Yeah. Uh, I wish Bardem had a bit more here as Stilgar. I mean, obviously in part two, he's going to play a major, much more major role as our most yeah. Fremen cast. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's incredible how much he does not look like Bardem. Mm. Definitely. Uh, yeah, if you don't point it out to someone, you know, it might be easier to kind of forget that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but all in all, you know, uh, casting is great. Story point wise, I have two major issues. Sure. Um, just because, I, I on the one hand, I understand uh why those those things have to be made, and maybe if we go into a spoiler section, I'll, I'll talk a bit about that. Uh, mm-hmm. but like kind of two major sections which I thought to me are critical to the telling of the story, right? Like because of when, they, how, and when they take place within the story. 
mm-hmm. dramatically uh, changes the way in which um, the rest of the story kind of pans out. Like, it's a causality thing, right? Mm. Um, yeah, and, and one of it is in the middle of the movie and one of it is all the way at the end. Um, yeah, so it's understandable, I think, because, you know, um, not everything on the page transfers nicely onto the screen. Right, mm-hmm. like it's hard to do internal monologue without having like you know some ca- character talking to you, a la Morgan Freeman, uh, yeah. and and it's hard to have like it's hard to show prescient visions in a way that is both like visually stunning and impactful and doesn't take up like a good chunk of like ten fifteen minutes, right? Because that's just mm-hmm. not tenable in in a runtime even of three hours. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely, yeah. So yeah. I do have some things that I. I'm worried about how they will resolve that because I, I it's very clear because uh, of the creative choices that were made for those points uh, mm-hmm. that they will either have to do makeup work for it in the second movie, which I feel might make it a bit clumsy, or mm-hmm. they will have to de-emphasize certain things within the law itself, which mm-hmm. is understandable because, again, like you can't tackle everything within those three hours, right? Um mm-hmm. So yeah, but I'm you know I'm gonna hold my judgment as to whether or not those were like your good choices, mm-hmm. uh, or, um, this uh, whether or not they'll be good choices despite not being faithful to the book itself, uh, yeah. and how that will when part two comes out. Definitely, you know, um, this is obviously just the first part of the first book, the first half of the first book. Um, yeah, the part one subtitle tells you straight out that it's essentially half a story, it, it, and yet you know because it it's just half the story. It allows that half all the breathing room that it requires. And yeah. even that, you know, it's still not enough to fit in most of the first half, a lot of the first half of the book. You know, mm-hmm. there's some parts that are skipped. Um, the majority of the complaints, though, surrounding the movie is that it feels like half a story to which I say, you know, like, no shit lah. Yeah. Um, Dude feels most reminiscent to me of uh, The Fellowship of the Ring. Mm. Uh like Fellowship, it's merely the opening part of a story, but yeah. manages to feel like a masterwork in its own right. Um, like Fellowship, it establishes a sprawling and complex world that feels both familiar and utterly new with you know, the lightest of touches. And like Fellowship, its biggest set piece comes just after the midway point, after 90 minutes of setting up dominoes. You know, yeah. and Villeneuve lets them clatter into one another in a spectacular style. Um, scattering the characters to various locations to the winds as the as the final hour becomes you know all out survival mode. Um, but unlike Fellowship, there's no guarantee of a two towers next year. Mm-hmm. Um, so for now we have more proof that Denis Villeneuve is a masterful filmmaker, and particularly in science fiction. Yeah. Um. Obviously, you you gotta pray to Shai Hulud that that this <laughs> does well at the box office, and we will get a part two because I think audiences deserve to see the conclusion to a, to an action film so immaculately crafted and mm-hmm. patiently paced. And yeah. I think the movie as a whole is artistically and intellectually dense in a way that will be will, there will be a barrier to to uh casual audiences going yeah. into this expecting a Star Wars type of action movie. Um mm-hmm. perhaps the only legitimate major complaint that I'll accept for this film is that it is I think thoroughly unfriendly to newbies yeah. uh, and non-book readers, um, especially given how minimally Villeneuve dwells on the universe's terms, technology, religions, regions, politics, and ecology. But the details of the book are 
either only quickly mentioned or have to be inferred. Um, and so they may be lost yeah. casual audience who are not paying attention. Like, you know, for example, mm-hmm. that the Benny Gesserit has engineered not only Paul's biology, but also spent centuries cultivating the Freeman religion to pave the way for Paul's messianic rise. Like, that may be lost to an audience or yeah. yet Keynes's uh, philosophy on ecology. Oh, yeah. Um, um, not really touched upon. Um, and fascinating things like that are too quickly glossed over and perhaps could have used a little more telling and less showing. Um, <laughs> but Villeneuve is like painting in this big, bold, thematic and visual brushstrokes here. You know, it's yeah. preferring to immerse you in Dune rather than tell you about Dune. And if I had to go one way or the other, I would honestly prefer it to be this way overall, all things yeah. considered. Mm-hmm. Um, any final thoughts before you give your rating and we delve into the spoiler section? Uh, yeah, so, okay, so if, if if some of you are listening to this and you you don't know what Dune is or you've heard of Dune and you've never gone into it, I, I will say this, right? As, as challenging as it is to newbies, um, mm. the beautiful thing about Dune is that you don't even need to read the first book to get all the information that you need. Yeah. Right. Because it's so well loved and so well researched and catalogued and archived that the Dune Wiki has everything that you need. Right. You want to spend four hours doing that, actually, uh, you know, just going through and understanding what the terms are and all of that without actually reading a book itself. Go ahead and do that. Right. We live in an age where that is considered acceptable. Uh, mm. it, it it this feels very much like walking into a, a museum. An art museum and seeing a massive kind of like beautiful, detailed, evocative mural that's there. But you have absolutely no idea of who the artist might be, what the story behind it is about and all of that. Uh, But the internet exists and the internet Mm -hmm. loves Dune. And all the information that you could ever imagine is present there even before you dive into the book itself. And that what it, that's what it feels like for me. I you know it's not like dense for the sake of being dense or, or esoteric for the sake of being esoteric. It's not some kind of hidden knowledge. It's not fucking tenet, right? Where there's no information about that whatsoever about how that's going to happen, right? This mm-hmm. is a reproduction of uh, not a reproduction, but but uh, but uh, it's an interpretation of something that's well loved and well worn mm-hmm. uh, over decades. So mm-hmm. don't be scared. Um, stick it out for the ride and everything that you could possibly have questions for or want to know is readily available to you. Mm. Uh, it's my encouragement. You know, uh, it, it, it's, uh, I, I just want to say this because like, you know, it's very easy for us to both come in here and like we've, we've already spent like two, almost two hours talking about Dune, right? On our, mm-hmm. on our last episode, behold. Um, yeah. But yeah, if you're listening to this, you don't know what Dune is about, it's okay. But mm-hmm. our recommendation here includes everyone, right? Like when we give this, you know, an objective kind of like star rating, um, it, it's it's for the movie itself and the fact that, you know, it's not going to be shut off for anyone who's not into or hasn't been into Dune or in sci-fi in general. Yeah, I mean, heck, um, even the original book comes with an appendix, so don't be shy about looking up the terms oh, because yeah. uh, even Frank Herbert had to do that at the oh, end yeah. of his book. Yeah. <laughs> Um, overall, I'll rate this um, a 7.5 out of 10. What about you? Yeah, it's 7.5 out of 10 for me. Um, just, yeah. It's it's a strong recommendation. I'm a big fan. It does mean a lot to me. And I'm very, very happy with the movie coming out. Mm-hmm. I am nitpicking for sure. Uh, 
I think yes. like on a general uh I mean not just in terms of faithfulness and things like that, I do feel like there were portions in which um uh, again, I don't know what this is about necessarily, but the dialogue can't be heard. Mm-hmm. Right, and I'm only assisted by the fact that I know what is supposed to take place in a given scene from the books itself, and uh, you can read Chinese, <laughs> and I can read Chinese, right? Which yeah. is the the subtitles that I had. You know, yeah. there are portions that it is hard to hear. I am filling in the gaps from par- prior knowledge, and mm-hmm. I have heard a lot of complaints from other people um, mm-hmm. that that they, they struggle with that, right? And I'm not sure what the tendency for that has been in a mm. lot of movies that I've liked in the last, like, five years or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, well, is it always Zimmer? No, it's not always Zimmer. Uh, no. Yeah, I, I only thought, like, you know, Nolan is a big, big perpetrator of that uh, mm-hmm. with how he mixes his his, his, his uh, vo- voices and his sounds. Yep. Yeah, but that's, like, one kind of, like, major thing. It really takes away in those moments from me trying to understand what's going on. I can only imagine if you're like new to this and on top of that, you can't hear the dialogue and the dialogue is so important to like, even the throwaway lines are so important to like you latching on for more information later on that that mm-hmm. could be extremely frustrating. Oh yeah, definitely. You know, uh, And that accounts for why it's only a 7.5 and not higher. Um, yeah. To delve into more details about specific nitpicks or specific things that we loved, we're now going to go into the spoiler section. So beware if you don't want spoilers. You can skip ahead to our Shang-Chi re- review up next. Uh, but we're going to delve into the spoiler section here right now. And Aisa, who's read the book many times over many years, yeah. um, tell us, you know, what were the scenes that were faithfully recreated and on the flip side what were you upset by that weren't included okay um okay the the opening scene is something that we don't get in the books or, or in mm. the book rather uh it maybe they dealt with it for house of atreides um the brian dealt with it for house of atreides but you know never got there so yep. uh i think that's important because it does set the stage and the tone for a lot of that it's also a great opportunity to spend just kind of like this 10-15 minutes um, showing off, right, the tech that you don't see anywhere else, showing off Kaladan, uh, mm-hmm. showing off like the amazing spacesuits that very honestly, up to this point in time, never existed in my head as part of the yeah. canon for Dune. Because like Herbert doesn't go into much detail for that. Like he describes steel suits, he describes like some of the house armor and the colors and stuff like that, but like never that in its entirety. Um, mm-hmm. you don't get any of the pomp and circumstance and bureaucracy of the empire necessarily mm. until much, much later in the series, right? So you don't mm. really get much of it in the first book. So being able to squeeze all of that in the opening is brilliant. It, that's fantastic. Um, yeah. Uh, most of the stuff on Caladan has been great. I do think uh, the Gom Jabbar scene mm. um, was very fateful in terms of like the way it was represented. Uh, or the way it, in which it was told was very faithful. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if it necessarily fit the image in my mind, which is something you're going to hear a lot during this this little rant. Mm-hmm. Um, most importantly, and we, we, we discussed this, most importantly for me, the scene that needed to be done, and they did, was the rescue of the harvester. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Hids and I, we had, we had a... Uh, just after the movie, we had like kind of like a discussion about that, and like that is so key, especially for a movie that can only show you one half of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, in establishing 
um, who Leto Atreides is and why yeah. the Atreides code is something that becomes important um, mm. all throughout the entirety of Dune, right? Particularly because Leto wouldn't be in the second film, so this is your one chance to do it. Yeah, yeah it is one of those amazing moments that define a character uh, mm. for the readers and they managed to capture that very succinctly, yep. very stunningly, uh, mm-hmm. and I was not disappointed for that. For me, I think that might have been the key standout moment of the film, mm. uh, for sure. Like that, absolutely made sense. Uh, it, it was faithful. It got not just like the the actual word of it, but the spirit of it as well. Um, and yeah, yeah, Oscar Isaac acted the hell out of that. I, I loved it. Um. Yeah, that I think was was definitely like one of the high points for me. Um, mm-hmm. just in like the meeting of, you know, um, what that scene is in the books and and what the scene is in the movie itself. Mm-hmm. Um, does that the Fremen Desert Walk? I think is is very cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but we we don't really get to see the Fremen's yeah. like do it like pro style necessarily. It's just yeah. Timmy and and Jesse like. <laughs> Yeah, stumbling their way through, which is fine, which is totally understandable. Uh, but Fremen combat, hell yeah, hell yeah! Like Fremen desert combat, amazing. That is exactly what I was looking for. Um, the tech, you know, in this world is strange and foreign, and not really what I imagined to be. But you know, we live in an age where CGI can do amazing things. The Ornithopters are something like out of my wildest dreams, right? Like mm. way beyond what I could imagine it to be. You know, same mm. with the giant like uh, spacecraft with the brutalist kind of like um, architecture in, in on Arrakis itself yeah, um, amongst all the sand and all of that. Like it really, really looks the part and I have no complaints about that. The two yeah. things that I will rant about or, or rather mm. I'm going to take a moment just to point out two, two particular things, right? And maybe it's just me nitpicking. First and foremost, um, a, a couple of things. First and foremost, there is um, occasionally Villeneuve has decided that there will be these uh, ghostly whispers, right? Mm-hmm. They're supposed to be reminiscent of... I mean, for those of us who have read the book, we know that that's supposed to be like the echoes of Paul tapping into his prescient visions and, you know, his his role as the, the Kishwa Shadarak. Right, mm-hmm. uh, and and those are the whispers of his 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 past and all the genetic memory of every ancestor who has ever lived before him. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is obviously something that can't be explained in the first half of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, is absent from the book mm-hmm. um, to begin with, and stands out as extremely puzzling, mm-hmm. and not in a good way. It's not like ooh, that's a mystery. It it feels very very random. And that kind of ties in into the first major instance in which it diverts from the book that I have an issue with, which mm-hmm. is Paul's first prescient vision as he is in the still tent with Jessica, mm-hmm. uh, with his mother, and he voices his prescient vision to his mother, mm-hmm. uh, which is not what happens in the book, right? Like he has the vision, he experiences it, he feels it, he retorts to his mother and dresses her down. Mm-hmm. Um, and it essentially marks the point in time when Paul is no longer a boy, right? Mm-hmm. He has moved from being a boy to being a force of the cosmos. Um, mm-hmm. And that dramatically changes what his character is like and how his character acts. Um, 
you know, from being a boy who aspires to leadership and power to being a boy uh, with power who occasionally lapses back into being a child, right? Mm. Uh, I, I felt that having that s- vocalized to Jessica didn't make sense uh, mm. to me. And it also, like, um, diminishes a great deal of the mystery for some of Paul's actions later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously Villeneuve has the opportunity to cut out scenes in which characters are wondering why Paul is doing what he's doing yeah. uh, but it is just as a whole law-wise problematic because Jessica isn't supposed to know what's going on with her son like she's not supposed to understand the inner workings of that she understands it because she's Bene Gesserit because she understands mm-hmm. what the concept of the uh, Kismet Haderach is uh, mm. But he he doesn't know who her son is anymore from that point onwards, right? And that's like a big part of the plot moving into part mm. two. Uh, mm. Him vocalizing it changes that. Mm. Um, in addition to that, um, the fact that he was he, he, in the book, he speaks of his mother's pregnancy in the tent, mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. we got that brought forward in the movie by a fair fair bit. Mm. Uh, you know, which is. Uh, yeah, I mean, like uh, again, it 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 felt like that particular moment was diluted. Um, mm. Yeah, it was diluted uh, in the movie itself. Um, so that's like my one kind of major complaint. Again, I understand it's hard to do internal monologue for a movie without mm. like taking a lot of time to do it boring the audience and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but mm. to have it vocalized in very clearly vocalized was just mm. like, mm, I'm not sure about that. Okay. My second portion comes at the end of the movie and I think like this might be the biggest one for me mm-hmm. uh, is that his fight with um, Jamis. Jamis takes yep. place before they reach the siege. Yep. And uh, that is really problematic for me, right? Because mm. that is his initiation into Fremen society for which mm-hmm. he will become the leader of, right? Mm. And the biggest part about it is not so much that how it took place or how the fight on it is where it takes place and who sees what happens, Yeah. right? Um, the whole idea that, first of all, that you would endanger your still suit in the in the open desert mm. in the day mm-hmm. um, for a, a battle like this is just a complete misunderstanding or ignoring like what Fremen culture is about. Right? Mm-hmm. Like water is precious, still suits are precious. You wanna fight, you fight at night. You wanna fight, mm-hmm. you fight indoors. You wanna fight with, with your Chris knives, don't wear your fucking suit. Right? Mm. So all of those things problematic for me. But the worst thing yeah. is that the the most important part and the defining characteristic of who Paul Mwadip is to the Fremen is the fact that in his initiation, in the very first moment of him becoming mm-hmm. Fremen, he gave water to the dead. And we yeah. don't get any of that here. Right? And like the people who are there in the movie to witness this fight outside mm-hmm. of Chani no one sees him give water to the dead. Mm-hmm. And that to me is an atrocity mm. um, that you, it's going to take a lot of work, I, I, I feel, to mm-hmm. make up for. 
mm. considering that we are going into the siege in part two, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there needs to be, um, maybe in general, because there isn't time for us to understand in the movie that the myth of Paul is massive mm-hmm. before he even touches, his his feet even touch Dune. Uh, get mm-hmm. he, he, even before he lands on Arrakis itself, like we don't yeah. have enough time to delve into that or the you know um the mission, protectiva, and how yeah. they've set up everything. Like there's no time for that. I understand that's fine, right? But it is it is diminished to the point where, uh, especially because of the fight being moved forward, uh, I don't yeah that didn't sit well with me essentially is what i'm saying right because it's problematic mm-hmm. it really is problematic because it's a major part of that like it is a defining character moment for paul much mm-hmm. in the same way that the harvester rescue is a defining character moment for lito mm-hmm. and uh yeah you know and i i i don't understand why they could not have just simply crossed over to the siege and mm-hmm. had the fight <laughs> first before ending the movie yep yeah that was my main thing because you end on a you end on a high in that manner right like you mm-hmm. go there there's a climatic fight right um, you've given you've given Jamis enough time to fucking stew over his his slight right well, then it makes more sense and it's not like oh I just met this child and I want to kick his ass like it, that like didn't sit well with me you know yep. get to the siege get to siege Tabar you don't have to establish the whole Fremen culture. Jamis, you can still move the fight forwards. Jamis throws down. You do the whole ritualistic thing. You end it with the fact that he gives water to the dead. And mm-hmm. the Fremen know it. And then you mm-hmm. end the movie there. Mm-hmm. And, and all, you might even go up to the point where... Um, an equally important point, right? But you, to, to the point where he gives Chani the water rings. Mm. And then you end it there. Then that sets up um, part two, which is supposedly, according to Denny, um, going to be told from Chinese point of view, mm-hmm. right? Because at this point in time, like Chinese, Chinese is you know a a pretty face in his vision. There's there's no establishing of any sort of like uh relational quality there so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I'm yeah, done with my rant. I mean, Those at least that two major major it, things it, for me. Um, I yeah. feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like uh, the the whole Chinese not. Having a character yet it's it's pretty much part of the book, but the rest of it is you're right. It's absolutely right. La. It's yeah. it's quite um a missed opportunities, la, shall we say. Yeah. Um not that what was done was uh all that bad, uh, to be honest, but there were just like certain opportunities for improvement. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh and, and, and that's where the criticisms uh, come from. La. I mean, likewise, you know, like there are certain things that are cut out that I don't mind at all. Um Lady Jessica being framed uh is one of those kind of silly subplots that Tufi Howard should have seen through and I didn't like about the book. Yeah. Um, and that part was cut out. I mean, sure, we don't get, you know, a drunk Duncan, but <laughs> I, I could I, I could do without that. Yeah. Um, the the dinner scene with uh, that introduces the politics oh, of Arrakis. Man. Yeah, so important. Um, missed opportunity as well, but... Mm. Again. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, it... It's okay. I, I can let that go. Agreed. Um, one, one big one that you haven't already mentioned, uh, you've mentioned all the biggest ones today. Like one big yeah. one that you haven't already mentioned is the conditioning of the Imperial Doctors, uh, in particular oh, yeah. with, with regards to Dr. Yue's betrayal mm-hmm. and why no one saw it coming. Yeah. Uh, without explaining the conditioning of the Doctors, 
you kind of diminish the shockingness of the betrayal yes. um, of Dr. Yue. Um, yeah. And that, that I feel is another missed opportunity. So like, yeah, those, are sure. the, those are the points, uh, the spoilery yeah. points that we have issues with. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, let's just go, go into that a little bit, right? Like Yue's be- mm-hmm. betrayal and the fact that he's a soup, um, he's a soup doctor uh, who has imperial conditioning, but right, he mm-hmm. can't, like he physically is supposed to be unable to betray the master to whom he's sworn. Uh, this yeah. is specifically for those of you who somehow managed to wander into the spoiler area. Maybe you've seen the movie, but you yeah. know, haven't done your research and, and, and haven't really gotten time to dive into that. Um, that is so important because that explains why to fear, and I'll get to Mentats in a minute, uh, mm. why to fear completely disregards the fact that he could be a traitor. Within mm. his cultural relations, <clears throat> as one of the greatest mentats that are, is alive, supposedly, mm-hmm. um, yep. that completely negates the possibility of Yue being the one who betrays the house. Yeah. Uh, and that is, of course, not dealt with at all because the mentats in the movie are, you know, toys, essentially. Yep. Uh, yep. With understandable like i think um like what what you said for uh in in our last behold episode right like mentats tend to be gimmicky and and plot um devices they are as smart as they need to be they are as stupid as they need to be and maybe that's something that Danny realized especially for the first book yeah um you know uh and, and, yeah and we don't get like a f- truly powerful full blown mentor yep. until paul comes into his ascendancy until much later in the series where your favorite mentor pops up. Mm-hmm. Uh, your mentor general pops up. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, like the mentors here, I do like the fact that there is a visual representation for them doing their math. That is mm-hmm. cool. That is cool. Mm-hmm. You only see it once and it is literally, no pun intended, blink and you will miss it. Yeah. Um, so that's one. Uh, yeah, the casting for Two Fear, eh. the uh, but Polka Dot Man as mm-hmm. uh, Peter Deveries, yep. brilliant, like brilliant. So sad, did not get to see him be absolutely creepy mm-hmm. uh, before he died, which was like, like it's such an early death, but it was so satisfying in the book because he's just mm-hmm. a creep, like yeah. to the nth degree. Um, also, I feel like a, a bit of a missed opportunity there, um, but. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that. Oh, okay. One more thing that actually kind of recently came out in one of my discussions uh, okay. with some of our other friends is that uh, they felt that the Baron is more evil here than mm-hmm. he is the master manipulator that we get to see in the books. Mm. Uh, and it is purely because there's one round table scene in House Harkonnen that he displays that, that he mm-hmm. shows his relationship with Beast Rabban and why Beast treats, you know, Arrakis the way that he does. Mm-hmm. Um, his relationship with Fade uh, Raoud. Uh, yep. And his relationship with Peter. Yeah. Uh, like, all those things in that one scene, man, they would have added so much. It really, really would. Like, you you go from understanding him to be the disgusting, grotesque man who you, you get the sense like he's evil at his core, but he's not necessarily brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't get any of that because we're missing that particular scene, right? And I mm-hmm. have to agree <clears throat> with that sentiment uh, that unfortunately, because you have to cut things out 
you get a very different baron because of that. And we are not going to be able, as far as I can tell, in part two, to be able to see that either. Mm-hmm. Because the story it shifts almost entirely away from House Harkonnen. Yeah. Uh, until the very end. But yeah, so that's just like another kind of complaint. I think it still works. Like mm-hmm. what the Elder Scars God has done, sure. Mm-hmm. The visual effect of it, the fucking floating with the long ass like gown, fuck, that is creepy as hell. Mm-hmm. Um, less comical, uh, far less comical than when I was in my head. Like, I think when I was young and the first time I was reading Dune, in my head, he was like a really, really exaggerated Dr. Robotnik. Yep, yep, yep. You know, uh, this I, is I, how, I see that. Yeah, yeah, I see this as far more terrifying for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but not, like, that kind yeah. of evil doesn't feel as dangerous as an evil that n- can scheme, you know? Uh, yeah, definitely. Them. Yeah. Okay. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I'm done complaining. <laughs> yeah, uh, that wraps up the spoiler section of Dune. Um, uh, if you have obviously seen the film, listen to the spoiler section. Um, uh, we, we do totally understand that, that like, as a filmmaker, it's very difficult to oh, yeah. include the scenes that we want to or expand on the scenes that we want to without bloating the film to a three-and-a-half-hour or four-hour um, quote-unquote Snyder cut. Um that being said, like obviously, I would love to see a four-hour cut of this, and apparently that exists. Um, so if there's anything, I would love to see the Villeneuve cut of this. Um, and it just goes to show that I think like Dune is probably more bet is probably more well serviced as a mini series or as a series than a film. Uh, but that being said, the way that Denis Villeneuve did this film, uh, was probably the best screen adaptation of Dune I've ever seen. Uh, next up, we move on from the WB to Marvel by talking about Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Oh, yeah. Um, after the Black Widow streaming controversy, uh, Marvel <laughs> Studios uh, returns to the big screen to introduce MCU's first Asian-American superhero in Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Um, not only is it a belated triumph for Asian superhero representation, um, it's also notable because the MCU finally delivers on a group introduced way back in Iron Man 1. Mm-hmm. The organization that first kidnapped Tony Stark was the Ten Rings. Um, and it also does justice to the beloved villain Mandarin after the amusing but divisive fake-out in Iron Man 3. Um, directed by Destin Daniel Cretton, the film stars Kim Convenience actor Simu Liu as the titular martial arts master. Uh, when we first meet him, he's a Chinese-American millennial slacker working yep. as a parking valet um, alongside his best friend, Katie, played by Aquafina. Uh, but when his thousand-year-old crime boss dad, Wen Wu, aka the Mandarin, comes looking for him, Shang-Chi is forced to confront his family's hidden legacy and hidden traumas to become this kick-ass martial arts hero and stop his dad from inadvertently destroying the world via his magical ten rings. Um, now the movie begins with what I feel is one of the strongest first acts I've ever seen in an MCU movie. The slacker BFF chemistry between Simu Liu and Aquafina is instantly endearing and winsome. Um, they are comedy gold together. The fight scenes are stunning, um, beginning with a graceful wuxia battle in the forest to a phenomenally choreographed fight scene on a bus that is reminiscent of early Jackie Chan. Um, Truly, the bus fight is easily the best scene in the film. It's 
incredible. Forget all the Disney Plus shows, forget Black Widow. This fucking bus fight between Shang-Chi and a group of assassins is hands down the best scene the MCU has ever produced oh, in yeah. 2021. And it will forever rank up there as one of the MCU's best fights ever. Um, plus, we get to see Wong Kar Wai Faith, Tony Leung, steal the whole goddamn movie as the Mandarin. Uh, Tony Leung is the film's MVP. He oozes charisma, swagger, coolness, effortless badassery. Uh, and more importantly, he also has the dr- dr- dramatic chops to sell the villain's tragic motivations, making the Mandarin not only one of the coolest, but also one of the most sympathetic MCU villains. Right, he's right up there with Killmonger, mm-hmm. Vulture, and Thanos in terms of how much we can empathize with him. Oh, yeah. In terms of the character work, the antagonist, the callbacks to MCU law, ranging from Wabination and Wong to Ben Kingsley's return as Trevor, the actor. <laughs> um, Shang-Chi started out as great fun. But then I kind of feel like it falls off a cliff. Oh, yeah. Um, but b- before I, I get to the bad points, w- what do you think about the movie overall? Oh, I was so excited. And I yeah. really, really enjoyed two-thirds of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's essentially it. I, I, I think the costuming is great. I think, like, they really hit, like, this kind of sweet spot between, you know, um, this idea of... of like... It's not an orientalized film. You get what I yep. mean, right? Like yep. it's a very, it's very, very true. Like it pays respect to its roots. The costuming is great. You understand, mm-hmm. you know, that there is this tension between, you know, uh, being a millennial, uh, third culture kid, um, all of that jazz. Fantastic stuff. They nailed mm-hmm. it very succinctly in just a couple of scenes. Gives mm-hmm. you all the action you want like you said one of the best fight scenes that we got in the bus fight scene is like it might be one of the best fight scenes of it, the film itself you know definitely uh, for sure right um, yeah. yes a lot of things about the soundtrack is great um, great kind of host of characters I think the casting as far as like Tony Leung and mm-hmm. yeah like, Tony Leung amazing amazing head and shoulders above everyone else might be the best villain that we've seen in the MCU yeah. um, Simu does a great job Aquafina, yep. like I, I continue to grow in in respect and admiration of Aquafina. I think she did a great job as well. Yeah. Um, martial arts and Jordan, uh, martial art gear and Jordans. I'm I'm for it. I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. I'm there for it. I love that. Um. Yeah. But I don't know. I think the sacrifice that they made in order to connect with the larger universe, mm-hmm. uh, by by falling literally into the mystical, yep, was not a worthwhile trade-off. Mm. I get it. You need Wong to show up. You know, you need Wong to, you know, say, he, you know, he's the new Nick Fury now. You need Wong to say, you know what, we need, we need everybody to get on this, because yep. you know the universe is at stake. Instead, sure, I mm-hmm. understand that. Was there some way to do it without having what, what's his face, Dweller, in Darkness show up? I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. give me more of what was great this amazing mm-hmm. father-son dynamic that is tortured and that is stretched and that is nuanced and painful to watch in so many ways like give me more of that right yep. give me more of this pull between a man's 
lifestyle of criminality and the innate goodness that he has found. Give me more of that. Right? Yeah. Like, you paid Tony Leung a bunch of money, let him mm. do his job, and not, you know, yeah, you know, not leave it up to this kind of like imagined, imaginary embodiment of evil mm. to kind of round off the show. Um, that's that's my feelings on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Shang Chi struggles mightily in its middle and climactic portions. Um, the fun pace and tremendous momentum grinds to a screeching halt when we arrive in Talo, a, a kind of mystical city filled with uh, mythical Chinese creatures and warriors. The while the high fantasy vis- visualization of the city and the creatures are wonderful. The kind of 30-minute exposition dump and slapdash world building is kind of lazy and boring. Um, this all leads to a big third act that loses the emotional resonance and intimacy of the film's setup to give way to empty spectacle. Um, giant kaiju start fighting, uh, soul-sucking demons swarm the air. And while it's all kind of pretty to look at, it totally distracts and detracts from the emotional core of the Mandarin and Shang-Chi's emotional and physical fight. Yeah. Um, once again, the Marvel formula kind of rears its head in the third act, reducing what could have truly been a, a poignant father-son story into a kind of brain-numbing CGI mayhem spectacular. The film lost my attention in the, in the last third, which yeah. is a shame, because everything that came before was spectacular. Um, that being said, this was still a really entertaining film with uh-huh. tons of potential for the future and because it made you love the characters enough to want to see them again uh, Simu and Aquafina specifically especially as they're folded into the larger MCU um, even though it stumbles on the landing I think it earns enough goodwill to keep you happy and to keep you looking forward to the future of these characters Uh, uh, any final thoughts before we go to our our ratings yeah yeah, exactly like you said right like enough goodwill for me to totally want to see whatever adventure these two go on uh, with Mm -hmm. Wong or without Wong (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. moving forward you know um, not to take away from the fact that the CGI is pretty phenomenal it is it's great CGI it is a great fight it just does not belong in this particular movie in my opinion um, yeah, yeah. You know, go throw it somewhere else uh, to what if maybe. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I came away smiling. Um, but yeah, you know, it just could have been so much more. Yeah, uh, that's why I'm rating it a six out of ten. What about you? It's a six out of ten for me as well. All right. Uh, we're sticking with Disney and moving to Disney Plus here to talk about Star Wars Visions, uh, which is an anthology series of nine animated shots produced by seven of Japan's most respected anime studios. Um, Each installment boasts a distinct artistic style and distinct tones. Um, Almost all the characters in Visions are original creations, and as with all successful anthology series, Visions excels at getting viewers emotionally invested in each character they meet despite the limited screen time. That's all the more impressive given the series' brevity, the episodes are short, ranging yep. from 13 to 21 minutes each. Though some of them are bound to leave viewers wanting to know what happens next, they are all, for the most part, satisfying, self-contained stories. You know, from adorable robots dreaming and becoming Jedi to an interstellar rock band putting on one <laughs> last concert to save their friend from Jabba the Hutt. Yeah. Um, every episode is something new and something fresh. Um, the most exciting thing about anthologies, especially ones set within existing IPs, 
uh, take the Animatrix, for example, yeah. is that they offer a chance for diehard fans to see their beloved series from new angles. And here, Visions doesn't disappoint with some of the best shots in the anthology radically reinventing or reinterpreting um, classic iconography mm-hmm. in ways that both honor what came before while offering us something new. There is also a refreshing um, kind of consistency between the quality of the shots, even as the styles and genres differ substantially. Are there some yep. better than the others? Of mm. course they are, but you know, like none of them are outright bad. Um, what are your thoughts on the series in general, and what are your your favorite episodes? Oh, uh, okay. Uh, I think generally, visions is is great in the promise of what may come in the future. Right? Mm. Like Star Wars meeting anime, perfect combination. Like I think like we definitely need more of that. Uh, yep. uh anime is the perfect medium for us to kind of like stretch the boundaries of what Star Wars could possibly be, both visually and and uh, you know, just in terms of the tonality that a lot of the time anime brings along with it, that we won't yep. get in the live action and we won't necessarily get with the very fantastic animated series that we've we've gotten from um from Lucasfilm Studios. Um, yep. Is it Lucasfilm Studios? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, Dave Filoni is running it, but yeah, yeah it's yeah. still Lucasfilm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, that being said, I do think that Vision this time around does offer a very unique kind of visual aesthetic. Um, obviously, deferring from deferring from studio to studio uh, to what most people imagine a Star Wars thing might look like. Uh, I welcome it because, I mean, not all of them are, you know, necessarily, like, brilliant, though some Mm -hmm. of them are. Um, It's uneven, just like you said. Just like the storytelling and the stories are uneven as well um, from that point of view. But they are, I mean, it feels like, it feels like the best kind of fanfic, right? (laughs) Uh, You know, meeting, like, one of my favorite uh, visual mediums. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it as a whole. Things mm. that stand out to me, uh, favorite episode by far, and I yeah. think it says it says something about the studio that did it is Ninth Jedi, mm. which is episode five, yep. Um, yep. done by Production IG, right? Mm-hmm. Heavy heavyweights, even in this list of like great studios, right? Production mm-hmm. IG is by far the the big the big boy here. Yeah. Um, yeah, the fight scenes, phenomenal. The 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 uh, landscapes, the all the end, background animation, fantastic, right? Mm. Like it's something that you totally expect out of production. IG who consistently puts out triple A anime titles every season, almost without mm-hmm. fail. Um, yeah. love it. Voice acting, fantastic. Uh, uh, the story twists were great in that. Oh in that one yeah, in particular yeah. a lot of stuff I didn't, I did not see coming. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, we won't we won't get into into spoiler territory necessarily, but yeah, uh, Ninth Jedi is you. I thought that uh, Tatooine Rhapsody was fun. Uh, yeah, and uh, I mean, Colorido is isn't a huge, um, necessarily huge studio, uh, but yep. they are well respected because they have done you know a couple of things. Uh, if you've watched on Netflix, there's this movie about a cat called Whisker Away that I believe hits reviewed some time ago. That's by mm-hmm. them. Uh, mm-hmm. I also reviewed something called Burn the Witch, which is actually um, the British equivalent of um, Soul Society in Bleach, uh, if right. you didn't know that. Yeah. Um, yeah, they, they did those two. 
Um, and they've done like a bunch of like Pokemon stuff as well. Um, mm. you know, so they're they're much smaller in terms of like scale uh to production IG. Uh, mm-hmm. but man, the story is so fun. Damn. Like yeah. you know, bringing back the music to Tatooine, uh, it's mm. just like it's it's so kind of like spot on. And it feels like one of those music idol anime like theme stuff. Uh, which I'm not super big on, but you know, I have watched like, you know, Detroit Heavy Metal and, and some of those uh, yeah. of those ilk. I really, really like that. Um yeah, I think those two are like by far my favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the ones that kind of stand out to me. I think the last episode, Akakiri, is not bad. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah I yeah. agree. Uh, visually, I think like um, what's the studio called? Science Saru has a very unique approach to to the anime style. Mm-hmm. Um, which yeah, I mean, it's it's not it's not bad. Like, I think maybe if I were to to pick kind of three, I would pick those three. Definitely, you know. Um, in addition to that, um, I mean, I I I um, second your sentiments and and to spotlight some of the other other episodes that yep. you haven't mentioned. Yeah. Uh, among the most compelling is the first of the series called the Duo, which it kind of immediately throws you in this uh, Jedi infused mishmash of Seven Samurai and yep. the Hidden Fortress, uh, a story about a village on the outer rim fighting back against evil raiders with the help of a surprisingly sympathetic Sith. Yeah. Um, the animation is this like grainy black and white you know kurosawa homage all the way uh with uh kamikaze duga offering crisp enticing oh, yeah. eye candy as the red green uh blazes of the blaster fire and the lightsaber battles you know they they kind of punctuate the, and, and contrast the otherwise sharp black and white presentations yeah um, it's the pure literalizer it's the it's it's so purely beautiful uh, and very enticing and such a homage to Samurai. Yep. Um, it's it's beautiful. This is the studio that does like Jojo Bizarre, uh, Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, right? So, I, yeah. When I heard that they were doing it, right, I, a part of me was just like, I really wish they do like a full-on Jojo style thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, you know, that's that's like... Uh, the, I'm, I'm very sure somewhere out there, there are fans that are going to do it. So I, yeah. I will wait for that. But yeah, like Kamakazi Doga, they basically... Only, I mean, that jo- mm-hmm. JoJo's what they've known for. They've done Batman Ninja, which we've reviewed yeah. as well, um, and then a bunch of other like pretty, pretty solid stuff. But yeah, visually stunning. Ah, uh, yeah, I kind of forgot yeah. about that. Like it, it, it's very solid. It was shorter than I wanted it to be, mm-hmm. uh, which is saying something. Yeah, um, sure. there's there's also you know um, T zero B one, which is an Osamu Tezuka kind of styled story about yep. a young droid who looks like Astro Boy, um, <laughs> who has um, aspirations of becoming a Jedi Knight, yeah. and what happens when he finally gets his chance. Um, from a, This one is, in terms of story, is my least favorite, yeah. but from a pure animation standpoint, the yeah. most dazzling yeah, yeah. Is, the tw- is the twins uh-huh. uh, from Studio Trigger. Um, the studio that did Promare, um, yeah. you know, about, about the despair of uh, clone race Sith siblings, uh, voiced in the English dub by Neil Patrick Harris and Alison Brie, <laughs> um, who do battle over the ownership of a kyber crystal. Um, it's it, like Promare, it's very highly hyper-stylized motion and big emotions, cameras whirling and warping around lightsabers and ships and characters to capture kind of this over-the-top action yeah um it's probably as a, as a story it's probably my least favorite and the dumbest yeah but like but from the animation is incredible it's 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 like anime on crack and i fucking uh, i fucking love it i mean you you talked extensively about Roman and how much you love that 
they've also, yeah. they've also done like Darling in the Franks, they did Little Witch mm. Academia, uh, they yeah. did uh, Kill Our Kill, they did Kill Our Kill, you know, like that whole like, style is kind of amazing, you know, and I, I, I kind of get it, like a lot of their enemy from Romare to Kill Our Kill in particular, they've required a lot more time to get into like the meat of the story. So for mm-hmm. them, like just like balls to the wall, um, visual spectacular, yeah, it's it's part for the course, and it's it's a yeah. ride, lah, for sure. Definitely, you know. Um, I also really like uh, Lop and Oko, which is a politically complex tale about two sisters, yeah, uh, one biological and one adopted, torn between their allegiances to the village, uh, that the empire occupies and the father who raised them, um, in kind of in the same vein but in a very different style uh the village bride is a nice little miyazaki ripoff and i mean that in a good way <laughs> yeah um it's that's pretty cool so there's so much versatility to mine from this universe not just aesthetically but thematically yeah. um i think visions is very wild in its swings and um it's vivid reconceptualizing of the universe is free from the obligations of canon mm-hmm. uh and in doing so becomes one of the most exciting pieces of Star Wars media um, I've seen in years, you know, um, this along with The Mandalorian. I think Star Wars has finally recovered from the stink of the sequels, the G.J. Abrams sequels, uh, and it's finally now fully fledged on the right track. Um, how would you rate Star Wars Visions? I'm personally giving it uh... I think, an, an 8 out of 10 for me. Oh, okay. I I'm gonna give it a seven point five out of ten. Okay. Yeah, I mean, like, there's plenty of st- good stuff. A- again, like, the and keep in mind that our score for this is kind of like the average, right? I think like some of these are like a solid eight and eight and halves, uh, mm. for sure. But like, to have just just the very idea of Star Wars Vision itself is like amazing to me, right? To have some of the most amazing animation studios in Japan who have made some of my favorite anime of all time, right? Mm-hmm. Come and do another franchise that I'm I'm super, super big about. Uh, you yep. know, like just the marriage of that in and of itself got me excited. And I think to a large extent, they delivered it. Uh, and, and like I said mm-hmm. at the very beginning, it is really about where this might possibly go uh, yeah. more than anything else, right? Like this is proof of concept that they completely hit out about. Mm, 100%. Yep. Um, if you haven't seen Star Wars Visions, it's available right now on Disney+. Plus. Uh, and probably by the time this comes out, uh, Shang-Chi will probably also be available on Disney+, Plus by then as well. Um, next up, let's move on from one streaming service to another. Let's talk about Netflix. And I'm going to talk about Mike Flanagan, uh, who is one of the best horror auteurs working today. Oh, yeah. Um, he is genuinely one of genre equality's favorite creators. <laughs> if you li- if you've listened to our past reviews yeah. of his shows and, and films, um, his new miniseries is called Midnight Mass, and it's set on isolated Crockett Island, where the town's small community of a hundred or so people is shaken by the return of a disgraced young man and the arrival of a preacher. Mm-hmm. Um, when the preacher seemingly brings forth miraculous events. An intense religious fervor begins to sweep the island. Its inhabitants are now forced to ask themselves whether these miracles are real, and if so, are they worth their price? Um, it's a premise that's 
exactly as creepy as you come to expect from Flanagan. Mm-hmm. And there are some distinct horror touches from the creator that are that are very haunting. Um, but it's not pure horror per se. Uh, much in the same way that The Haunting of Bly Manor was more of a gothic romance than it was a horror. Um, Midnight Mass never truly starts in the traditional sense of TV. Yep. It more like quietly unfolds. <laughs> um, in fact, little to nothing happens in a miniseries' first three episodes. Yeah. If you are not into slow burns, this may frustrate you quite a bit. Um, I appreciate that, that Flanagan goes to such great lengths to make this world feel lived in. Uh-huh. It's that groundwork and character work that makes what happens next feels so special. Yeah. Um, there's an excellent story hiding in Midnight Mass. <laughs> the, the series is an it's a, it's, it's, at its core, it's a frightening exploration of faith and fanaticism, um, underlined by rich themes, by empathetic character studies, and dread-filled tensions. It is less interested yeah. in bumps yeah. in the night than exploring spiritual questions and the role that organized religion plays in uniting and dividing communities. Uh, but getting to these pivotal moments require three hours, almost half the show, um, you've seen most of it, right? How do you feel about the pacing yeah. of the show and, and, and what are your thoughts Ooh, Um Very honestly, like, yep. first episode, I was just like, oh my God, really? And then I remind myself, this is Mike Flanagan. Mm. Uh, but that being said, this might still be the slowest Mike Flanagan so far, right? Yep. Like, for both the houses, we got them, eh, we had to give them like two episodes. This one yep. is like a solid like three and a third of an episode before things actually kind of pick up. Uh, well, but the that... ending of the third episode is probably the big turning point that will hook viewers, but it takes a while to get there. So yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, yeah, so it is incredibly slow, but uh, you know, I, I took a breath. Uh, I took a break. I came back to it and like, you know, kind of um, maybe because I was so excited that we got another Mike Flanagan on our hands. Uh, mm-hmm. I was ready to kind of dive into that. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you if you calm down and you take your time uh, mm-hmm. with it, or rather you you take what time it gives you, um, yep. like it it's it's very beautiful and mm. extremely calming, and mm. immersing yourself in that vibe uh, mm. and and the tone of the story before you get to the the juicy bits mm-hmm. uh, is incredibly important. Right, mm-hmm. like f- most of the time, like if it's something worth skipping, we would tell you, like you know, just watch it from end of episode three onwards or whatever, right? Yeah. Uh, but no, you have to sit through it because it sets the entire tone for everything that comes next. The things yeah. that come next are only shocking because of you know the fact that you've gotten, you've taken the time to get to know the characters, to get to mm-hmm. know what this this little community is about. Um, it. It, you can't skip the world building here uh, mm. because it is so integral to the way things unfold later on. Yeah. Uh, and it was only when things started to pick up. Mm. Or, well, there's a specific moment in which things pick up. Like, let's just put it that way. Yep. Uh, everything falls into place and they're like, oh, okay, I get it now. Yeah, sure. Mm. Like those three hours, well worth it, right? Uh, yeah. And that is not to say like the first three episodes don't have their own merit. It's incredibly mm-hmm. beautiful. It's so well shot, right? Like as you would expect from from a, a Flanagan production. Um, yeah. The the coloring is so good. 
that's really? the kind of thing that kind of sticks out to me the most, right? Mm. Like you've got like this little island and and like just the scenery and even like the indoor mm. shots with sometimes like with, with with their fireplaces and things like that. Like, oh mm. my God. Like if you didn't know it was a horror film, it might be some sort of, you know, rustic slice of life thing. Yeah, um, um, it gave me a lot of uh, my brilliant friend vibes in yeah. the first few episodes. Yeah, yeah. and and it, it felt nice. It felt good. And then, yeah. you know, and then you realize why you're watching this. You're reminded about why you're watching this and it just mm-hmm. adds to that. So yeah, um, if, if you started and you haven't continued because you think it's too slow, please give it a chance. Uh, I'm, yeah. I am like midway to the penultimate episode because, um, yeah, it just came out anyway. Um, yeah. But yeah, I am totally enjoying where I'm at right now. In fact, yeah. after this, I'm probably gonna go and finish it up. Um, awesome, you know. Um, the, the the climax is is very worth it, and 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 Isa is right. Yeah, some may be turned off by the um laborious space. It's a clear barrier to entry. I understand that. Yeah, yeah. Um, in in this day and age where there's so much to watch, um, requesting that you give something three hours. Uh, feels a bit insulting, but um, if it wasn't worth it, I would tell you. And in this case, it is worth it. Yeah. Um, I personally didn't mind the pace. Um, uh, it's kind of more my 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 speed anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, I do hundred percent clearly acknowledge the show kind of could have used um tighter editing. Um, oh, it, yeah. it really could. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is way too overlong. Uh, and one other criticism of the show that I was most bothered with was. Um, I don't. I love the show overall. I I I liked it. I know for all the reasons I mentioned, but the kind of um unnatural stagey dialogue where every character, whether they are a priest or a paralyzed teen, seem to have the same tendency towards speechifying. Yeah. Um. Literally, everyone is given at least one big speech to show off how great of an actor they are if they're good <laughs> at their job. But as superb as every actor is, it's a kind of parlor trick that gets old fast once you notice it. Yeah. Um, every, like, human beings do not speak in, like, 18-page monologues. It's, it just doesn't happen. Um, yet, once the show kind of clicks, its alchemy of tension and suspense and storytelling reveals itself to be really incredible stuff and will reward your patience. Yeah, um, yeah I mean... I, I do understand everyone's like viewing queue is miles long. Mm-hmm. Asking to give um, any show a few episodes before it quote unquote gets good. <laughs> uh, it's, 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 not, it's not something um, a lot of people are into these days, but yeah. that's exactly what Midnight Mass requires. Yeah. If you give Flanagan's new series the time it deserves, you'll be treated to a soulful and gorgeously acted story about what faith means, mm-hmm. a truly satisfying finale, and seen as an in its entirety, uh, Midnight Mass is, I think, absolutely worth your time. I'm giving this a seven point five out of ten. Uh, of the six, of the five and a half episodes you've seen, how would you rate it? Oh, um, it's a solid seven for me, all the way up to now. I don't know what the climax is. I'm super excited, mm-hmm. but like up to this point, it's a, a solid seven out of ten for me. Okay, cool, awesome. Uh, next we'll move on to the latest season, season five of. My Hero Academia, uh, which is, of course, one of the best and most popular shounen anime of the modern era. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, we're going to be talking about an eventful 25, 24 episodes that have just wrapped up. Um, this season started off with the fun joint training arc that pitted <laughs> Class 1A against Class 1B, yep. uh, giving a rare spotlight to those in the other class. Um, then we had um, an emotional work-study arc as Midoriya Bakugo went to work with 
to the Roki at Endeavor's agency, mm-hmm. um, giving well-earned emotional closure to the saga of Todoroki's childhood abuse and yep. Endeavor's search for redemption in the eyes of his kids. However, its climactic meta-human liberation arc where the League of Villains takes center stage mm-hmm. as protagonists mm-hmm. is exceptional. The best part of season five. Yeah. Um, heck, the show is even rebranded as My Villain Academia for a time. Yeah. Um, it features not just great action and stakes, but phenomenal character work for Tomura, Himiko, Twice, you know, and, and, and the rest as we learn about their tragic backstories. Yeah. Um, it's honestly the most excited I've been for MHA. Not that MHA has been bad by any means for the last yeah. two, or, two or three seasons, but this is the most exciting arc that I've personally seen <laughs> in probably the last three seasons, is, and it's been my favorite. Uh, what about you? What do you think about MHA Season 5? Uh, I, I feel like Season 5 overall has the wonderful... Uh, advantage of presenting to us characters that we only see in the background, right? Or they're the foil or they're a plot device and all of that. But yeah. they, they, they get breathing room now. They get their own kind of like little snippets of their backstory. Some of them are developed more than others. Our villains get a ton of work done, which is great. Um, yep. Because uh, I, like a lot of modern shonen um, anime that we've mm-hmm. gotten in the last couple of years, uh, My Hero Academia included, is that it is um, authors have learned that it is very very important to give a very balanced view of the conflict that you have, right? Mm-hmm. Humanize your villains, and people will love it. Uh, you know, yeah. and like this is like this is a, the epitome of that exercise, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just being able to kind of balance everything out, uh, and it of course plays into our protagonist, Midoriya's entire disposition and his, um, you know, willingness to see good in others um, mm-hmm. overall uh, and, and just kind of plays into that entire idea, right? But if as an audience, we don't get to see that as well, then, you know, maybe down the line, no spoilers. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, Midoriya's actions may not make as much sense. Mm. Um, I, I, I think, right? Like how it fits into kind of the greater scheme of things of where... Um, the story past the enemy is at now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I fully, fully love that. Uh, I really, I really like it when large ensemble, um, when you have a large ensemble cast, uh, yep. like we have here in My Hero Academia, uh, mm-hmm. dares to flesh out the minor characters and then go one step further to bring in even more minor characters as mm-hmm. reflections and or counterpoints to your favorite characters. Uh, mm. Like, that is... Oh, man. Like, it's a lot of work. It is a ton of work to do. Uh, mm-hmm. But for you to kind of flesh that out is, is just a testament to the kind of storytelling that we are getting from, you know, uh, what a lot of people dismiss as a shonen anime. Like, just another shonen anime. Right? The numbers yeah. back to differ. The fan base around the world backs to differ. Uh, but I, I still see people kind of like... You know, dismissing it without ever having watched it necessarily. Um, yeah. So yeah, I I really really love that. Um, just like rounding out the world, the immediate world among our favorite heroes uh, or heroes mm-hmm. in training, uh, is mm-hmm. is vastly vastly important. And then two for the second, well, for the last third of the season, to get mm. like full backstory. Like mm. full, juicy, gory, horrible, tragic backstory from mm. 
perhaps, well, two of the main villains, I guess, and twice thrown in there as kind of like a good measure, uh, yep. is is like, it's such a treat, man. Damn, that's like, you know, strawberries and sugar on top. Uh, so, oh, so good. Definitely. The, the My Villain Academia arc has kind of reignited uh, my fervor for watching MHA week to week. Like, yep. I've never like lost interest in it. Yeah. It's just that, like, I've I I've always found something lacking with the League of Villains. I've never quite put my finger on it. That I yep. never just felt invested in them. Uh, but right now, and this is the highest compliment that I can give League of Villains. Uh-huh. I'm as interested in them as I am is the as I am in the Phantom Troop. In oh wow, that is big, dude. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I I completely hear you. I completely hear you. And again, like Hunter and Hans, Hunter did it first. Right? Yeah, uh, yeah. They did it first twice. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, totally. Like, I, I mean, like, I was, I think, uh, well, when they did twice, I was a little bit mm-hmm. surprised because I didn't think he necessarily had a big enough role for that. But much yeah. like, you know, at the beginning of the season with, uh, with Class B, um, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of the same thing, right? Like, you have a, it, he is still, for all intents and purposes, a minor character. He, for mm-hmm. all intents and purposes, will continue to be around that level for a large swath of the story. Um, yeah. And but the he has an extremely compelling backstory that mm-hmm. if you sit down to think about it for more than five minutes, you're like, "Wow, that's really fucked up." I can I understand mm-hmm. why he is the way he is because like that's really fucked up. Uh, and yeah. and you know like it's not necessarily to be the bad big bad. Mm-hmm. The the BBGE right, um, yeah, uh, you know which we do get in 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 two solid like uh, episodes, um, yeah. especially for Shigaraki, like yeah. that is just uh, um, it's important right like to have something that's more well rounded out than that, you know like mm-hmm. your it's not it's not a damn what was it that you were saying uh, with fruitless basket it's not like a trauma. Uh, competition Point, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah it's not a, a trauma competition here and you know where you place in the world with your trauma doesn't mean the greater your trauma necessarily the more evil you are um, yeah. you know and and I think that's important there's a nuance there that is often lacking in a lot of shonen type anime um, mm-hmm. that doesn't bother to take the time with their characters um, mm. and you, you know we if you've been listening to us for a while you know that we both love character work right yeah, definitely. Um, um yeah. and also I mean the League of Villains just never felt as cool as like say the Yakuza gang that we got oh, yeah. you know, um from <laughs> the previous seasons and, and, and certainly like not as cool as like I mentioned the Phantom Troop, but yeah. it's getting there now like, with with the groundwork that's laid yeah. uh, in my villain academia. So I'm starting to see them as a force, I'm starting to be invested in oh, them. Yeah. And and I want to watch more of it. Like uh, with with that being said as a whole, how would you rate the season? Um I still do feel there are quite a number of like filler episodes, but then again, that is to be expected of a twenty-four episode season. Yeah. Uh, and like, it's not good filler necessarily. Like previous seasons, like we got pretty good filler, you know. Mm. Um, this time not so much. The Christmas one, eh. uh, yeah. Some of it here, some of it there. Uh, but like, just for the sheer amount of awesome character work from Endeavor and his family. From our mainline heroes to the minor characters in B to the, the my uh, villain academia, uh, I'm gonna yeah. give it a solid eight, which okay, might cool. be the mm-hmm. best score I've given it since season one. Definitely, yeah. yeah. I'm I'm giving this 
I've usually rated it about a 7 out of 10, so I'm going to give this one a 7.5 out yep. of 10. Yep, yep, yep. That's... Nice. Um, next up, I'm going to dive in into Quick Hits, which is a little segment where I talk about some of the shows and movies that my co-host hasn't been able to watch. Uh, first off, I got to touch upon Why the Last Man, which is based on one of the most revered comics of all time by Brian K. Vaughan, who is one of my favorite comic book writers of all time. Um, Why the Last Man takes place in a post-apocalyptic world where an unknown calamity has killed every animal with a Y chromosome, except for a man named Yorick Brown mm-hmm. and his pet monkey, Ampersand. Uh, we follow Yorick as he journeys through this new world of women, as he and his new female friends <laughs> fend off threats and seek to build a new society. Um, unfortunately, this live adaptation um, lacks the wit of Brian K. Vaughan's dialogue and the imagination of his world building. It ends up being a very by-the-numbers type of post-apocalypse story. There's nothing overtly bad about it. It's a solid show, but a frustrating one that frequently struggles to embrace what's unique about itself. The series can have provocative moments. The pace is generally compelling, but it's just never as entertaining as the comic was. Um, The series has some thematic richness, and it sets up several terrific monologues to underline its speculative choices. You know, it poses rich questions about gender, about power, about collective trauma, but does it have the intelligence and visual force to properly interrogate them? Mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen any evidence of that. Yeah. The, the biggest issue about the show is that it's talky and murky, and although the storytelling doesn't exactly lag, it never finds the right balance with its action and adventure elements. Um, despite a good cast, it's a shame to say that the show feels rather too generic for anyone suffering from dystopian fatigue. Oh yeah. Uh, so this is a five out of ten for me. Not overly bad, but not good. Uh, I've... That's disappointing, man. Uh, the yeah. the comic is one of my one of my favorite. All time, all yeah. time, yeah. Brian Kevon, uh, like everything he touches is gold, including you know his latest saga, you know, mm-hmm. which is definitely unfilmable. But <laughs> oh well, we we will uh, see. Someone might try it. You never know. It, it, guys with like computer hits are just like weird. I don't I don't know whether I can accept it in live action. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, may, maybe in animated form, I might. Uh, anyways, let's move on to season three of Doom Patrol. All right. Um, from the Suicide Squad to Legends of Tomorrow to the animated Harley Quinn series, it seems like screen adaptations of DC properties work best when it leads into like really weird, madcap, offbeat, and absurd kind of stories. And perhaps no other adaptation exudes this kind of freewheeling sense of inventiveness and comedy more than Doom Patrol. It's a wild and wonderful third season that sees our profoundly damaged misfit heroes kind of find renewed purpose uh, and a lot of, you know, um, vulgar fun. Um, Truly, the series' black humor and wackiness and surprising heart continues to be a a, a really ridiculous gonzo experience. And Mm -hmm. I was worried for a bit because the tail end of season two lost me because the show sacrificed a lot of the madcap energy for a lot of hand-wringing, dour pathos. Um, without the counterbalance of fun. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, though, after the premiere episode of season three, um, that quickly wraps up the lingering storylines of season two. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the show kind of reasserts its best version of itself. It becomes once again a series about a bunch of fucked up weirdos uh, that don't let their inner turmoil and pain keep them from throwing caution to the wind and kind of just saying yes to every ludicrous 
predicament that comes their way. Um, all the actors on the show are great. Um, they're great at the heart and the humor of the story because they commit so wholeheartedly to it. Um, Diane Guerrero is, is easy to show as MVP once again because, you know, playing Crazy Jane, she has these 64 distinct personalities that she <laughs> plays, you know, like often like energy but turned up to 11. Um, all her scenes kind of maintain this crackling energy which is aided by the character finally getting opportunities to be in a good mood this season. And a lot of the characters are in good moods this season which elevates the sense of fun. Um, the series is, it has this knack for maintaining standalone adventures while still driving forward the larger season-long arcs. Um, very old-school TV storytelling, and it remains one of its best qualities. Uh, no one is stuck endlessly brooding a la season two. Um, they all react with foul-mouthed bemusement that, that, the show is so, that made the show so entertaining in the first place. Um, each new journey is uh, it's another chance for you know, this fusion of over-the-top spectacle and less-rating humor, um, and it's all kind of liberally dosed with profoundly humanist storytelling. It's kind of hitting on all cylinders this season, so I'm giving this an 8 out of 10. Uh, next up, let's move on to the 20, 2021 version of Candyman. Mm-hmm. Um, for those who don't know, Candyman was one of my favorite horror films growing up. The imposing and iconic figure of Tony Todd struck such a chord with me as a kid. The film's use of Crabini Green as its setting, you know, the, the notorious public housing project in Chicago, um, it, it allowed it to mix scares with potent themes exploring class and race in inner city America. It was one of the first times I've, I've noticed that horror can also be an effective vehicle for social commentary. Um, as such, this new sequel to Candyman by Nia da Costa has been up there as one of my favorite and one of my most anticipated horror films for quite some time. Uh, for those unfamiliar, here's the breakdown of the story. Um, for as long as residents can remember, the housing projects of Chicago's Cabrini Green neighborhood has been terrorized by a word-of-mouth urban legend, a supernatural killer with a hook for a hand, who is summoned by those daring to speak his name five times into a mirror. Um, in the present day, a decade after the last of the Cabrini Green Towers were torn down, um, visual artist Anthony McCoy, played by Yayi Abdul-Mateen II, uh, and his partner, uh, a gallery director named Brianna Cartwright, uh, move into a luxury condo loft in Cabrini, now gentrified beyond recognition mm-hmm. and inhabited by outwardly mobile millennial people. Uh, Anthony finds that his painting career is on the brink of stalling, he has a chance encounter with a Cabrini Green old-timer, played by Coleman Domingo. Uh, you may recognize him as uh, Ali from Euphoria, yep. who exposes Anthony to the tra- tragically horrific nature and the true story of Candyman. Um, he's anxious to maintain his status in the Chicago art world, so Anthony begins to explore these macabre details in his studio as fresh inspiration for his paintings. Unknowingly, his explorations opens a door for the return of Candyman, and all hell breaks loose. It has a great premise. It has a great cast. Its themes seem to be faithfully updated from the original film. It has some really well-intentioned ideas about how to depict Black American trauma through a horror lens. Unfortunately, this new Candyman is far too didactic in its approach. This new sequel is so blunt in its message-driven purpose that it flattens into something entirely generic. You know the saying, um, a picture paints a thousand words? Uh, This movie tries to explain a picture in a thousand words. Um, 
I think 2021 Candyman fundamentally misunderstands the allure of the original and at worst of all, has nothing meaningful or new to say or insightful to say about the contemporary ideas that it's observing. Uh, Though it delivers some entertaining comedy and bloodshed and gore, Candyman is so clunky and so overtly unsubtle in its metaphors that it kills its subtext. Like, it kills his subtext, like, more brutally than Candyman has ever killed a person. Oof. It is... Is it terrible? No, it's not. It, it crafts some good scares and some good set pieces and some beautifully haunting imagery, but it's not smart and it's not thought-provoking, at least not as thought-provoking as it thinks it is. So it's a 5 out of 10 for me. Um, next up, let's move on to Adventure Time Distant Lands, Wizard City. Um... Adventure Time is back for the final installment of its Distant Lands miniseries, and after three delightful hour-long episodes featuring Bimo, mm-hmm. Marceline, and Princess Bubblegum, and the reunion between Finn and Jake, this fourth and final entry focuses on Peppermint Butler. Um, it's a weird choice for the final episode, but hey, what else, you know? Um, <laughs> it's, called, it's called Wizard City because this episode follows Peppermint Butler after he lost his collected knowledge and maturity in season 10, basically reverting back into a child. Um, Pep lost not only the ability to speak, but also his mastery of dark magic. So the candy kid has begun to grow up again and is now a young teen, and he set out to study magic at the academy in Wizard City. Um, however, things are much harder for him now because he's trying to keep his villainous identity a secret. He's frustrated at how slow the process of relearning magic is, and he's bullied by the cool by the cool magic school students. Um, this is an entirely standalone entry that features a cast of new characters mm-hmm. and a series of new mysteries. The mysteries primarily involve some students and faculty being murdered uh-huh. and some ancient artifacts going missing. Um, immediately. Suspicion is cast on Peppermint Butler because of his checkered past. So yeah. he must prove his innocence. Um, principal amongst the new cast and fellow outcast, Kadibra, who is the niece of Abracadabra, uh, Abracadaniel, I'm sorry. And Kadibra is, is, <laughs> is just going to visit school because of family pressure. Um, she is not interested yeah. in real magic. She wants to be a stage illusionist and a sleight of hand magician, which <laughs> she considers to be the more skillful and glamorous art form. Um, she's quite a delight overall and quite a contrast to the more serious magician that Peppermint Butler is. All in all, it's probably a less impactful um, episode in terms of mythology, stakes, and emotional resonance than the other Distant Lands uh, features. But um, it's still... A good episode of Adventure Time that's cute and quirky and entertaining, so it's a 7 out of 10 for me. Mm. Finally, I'm going to be talking about Malignant, uh, which is by horror golden boy James Wan, who returns from superhero land (laughs) back to where he comes from, to the horror genre. The guy created The Conjuring and the Saw franchises, so he's got a pretty solid track record. Um, Even Aquaman, notwithstanding its quality, was one of the rare box office successes for Warner Brothers. Um, his new film, Malignant, follows a woman named Madison mm-hmm. who is paralyzed by shocking visions of grisly murders. And her torment worsens when she discovers that these waking dreams are in fact actually happening. Thus, she decides to try to save these victims. Um, sadly, this kind of turns out to be a humorless melodrama that sits somewhere between a slasher, a ghost story, and a possession flick, never kind of fully embracing either. Yep. The result is a kind of confusing mix of genre archetypes that lacks 
a clear point of view, um, even a surface level stylistic one. Mm-hmm. The characterizations are people thin, the dialogue is perfunctory, and the performance are the performances are to put it charitably, um, kind of adequate at best. Ooh. So, up until the last thirty minutes, right? I was considering giving this a three out of ten. Mm-hmm. Up until the last thirty minutes, what does redeem the film is the last thirty minutes. I'm not going to spoil it, but it has the craziest fucking coolest ending that blew my mind that elevated it from a 3 out of 10 to a 5 out of 10. It's okay. insane. Okay, like, okay. It's, worth, it's, it's worth watching just for the ha- last half hour. I won't spoil what it is. Uh, but right. I was like, I for 1 hour, 15 minutes, I was just like, fuck this movie. And then last half hour, I was like, yeah, this movie rocks. You know, so <laughs> overall, it's a, it's, it's, it's a 5 out of 10. I, I don't know because, you know, part, a lot of it sucks, but yeah. part of it is really cool. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, there you go. Uh, um, yeah, it's always hard, right? Like when they stick a landing that they don't really quite earn. It's it's yeah. hard, yeah, yeah. Um, and next up, though, I mean, let's throw it over to Aisa, who uh, will talk about the conclusion of the Transformers: War for Cybertron trilogy on Netflix. How did that go? Oh man, oh man. Okay, so uh, when the the War for Cybertron trilogy first came out, I I do remember. I think hits was it you and me. Um, mm-hmm. we, we reviewed Siege, which was the first one, right? And uh, we gave it fairly decent scores, if for nothing else than the fact that um, uh, competent CGI coupled with the fact that for the very, very first time in a Transformers franchise, you had a lot of dialogue that was actually mm-hmm. very compelling and a long, if somewhat slow, treatise on the danger and nature and need for war um, and revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, for for uh, uh, you know, just as for um, as a way for the disenfranchised to 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 have themselves hurt, right? Which has never in the history of Transformers ever happened before. Uh, and and we gave it pretty decent scores for that. Uh, I actually missed the second chapter, which was Earthrise. Uh, I yeah. caught it a bit here and there. Uh, nothing much. Continuation of the story. Not much of dialogue. A lot more action. Um. You know, they come to earth and all of that. I was um I hopped onto Kingdom, which is the chapter three, because it deals with uh with the Maximals and the Predacons, right? Which are mm. for those of you who are old enough, much like myself and his, uh come mm-hmm. from the Beast Wars continuity of Transformers, which uh in my mind, uh my nostalgically uh saturated mind. Is one of the best Transformers series that has ever existed. Uh, it yep. was the advent of like early CGI in cartoons, together with things like, uh, um, oh crap, I forgot what's the what's the fighting insects movie called? Uh, Bumblebee. No, no, no. Uh, Marines fighting insects. Uh, uh, Starship Troopers? Yeah, Starship Troopers, right? Like that era of CGI, like horrible, terrible. Yeah. Hasn't aged well at all. But in my mind, I, I love those series. Um, you know, back in kind of like mid 90s, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I thought, okay, let's see what they're going to do with this, right? Because, you know, uh, there's like um, setting the tone with the fact that you're willing to go into a bit of a deeper examination of the world and the world building and the issues kind of surrounding that after, you know, the travesty that is the many, 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 many explosive Michael Bay movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I'll give it a chance. 
I am yep. sad to say, unfortunately, yeah. that the CGI doesn't live up to it. That mm. the dialogue that's here is try hard at best. The yep. story is convoluted and confusing. Mm. Uh, there's time travel involved because of relativity, which is understandable, but they do a piss poor explanation of it. Um, it's a okay. mess. It's a mess. And like, you got two Megatrons and they just play it for laughs, which is incredibly sad because I think it's a missed opportunity to talk about like identity and all of that. Um, Optimus Prime and um, Optimus Primal, they, they, the interaction is just it just feels extremely forced uh, unfortunately right and at times a bit out of character from what I, I think from my point of view as, as a as a Transformers fan as a kid what they mm-hmm. would necessarily do uh, yeah. yeah so I'm I'm giving it a 4 out of 10 um, just because like you know like I, I feel there's enough there um, if you're a kid who enjoys robots right yeah. Uh, but you know, um, given that Siege set the tone, and I thought, okay, this is going to be a bit more mature. This is going to be a bit more adult about things. Uh, you know, it, and for the first time, you're really kind of delving into like issues that I would have never, in as a young kid, think about or bother about or be interested in, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, yeah, just delving into kind of like the existential part of what it is to be a sentient robot fighting an internal war. Uh, but then you get none of that, and and I was very very disappointed. Right, the animals don't look great. The yeah, the action is not great. The fights aren't great. Like there's nothing great about it. But there is enough transforming and robots to keep a kid happy for sure. Yeah, um, is my thing. Uh, yeah, and as a side note to that, if you want all of like what I've said about having mechs and like having like long philosophical well thought out compelling discussions about war and the nature of war and who are the victims of war uh, go watch Gundam Hathaway <laughs> yep. which is my very short endorsement uh, before I throw it into an anime corner sometime down the road mm, definitely awesome okay okay so a uh, 4 out of 10 uh, so n- don't watch the War for Cybertron trilogy I did not enjoy the first season yeah. so I guess I have no reason to continue no 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 point really really no point like it feels a lot like it feels like tragedy which is why yeah. like I mean I, I put it on in the background while I was doing work and shit it feels like mm-hmm. tragedy much in the same way like the animated 3D Godzilla movies felt like tragedy, like that level gotcha. of tragedy. And the CGI is nowhere near as good as Godzilla. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, so okay, no okay. All right. Uh, to cap off this episode of Genre Equality, I'm going to be talking and giving you a little guide to Isaac Asimov's combined robots, oh, yeah. empire, and foundation shared universe of novels. Um, there are many books considered foundational to modern science fiction, right? From the works of Arthur C. Clarke, to, of course, we've already talked about Frank Herbert. The sweeping genre, it's... it's there, There's a lot of it in literature. Yep. Um, in, in modern literature, there are a lot of great writers working right now, like Liu Jiaxin and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. But one of the most influential books of all time was the original Foundation series mm-hmm. by Isaac Asimov. Um, without Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, the, the term... And the concept of galactic empire would not have entered science fiction canon. The first book that ever introduced the idea of a galactic empire 
without which there would be no Star Wars, there would be no Dune, mm-hmm. was Isaac Asimov. Yep. Um, the original Foundation trilogy, interestingly, has one of the most cool concepts I've ever seen in sci-fi. It, it centers on the concept of a fictional science called psychohistory, um, a science that allows people to predict future events. Um, mathematician Harry Seldon uses psychohistory to accurately predict the fall of a vast galactic empire, subsequently founding the Foundation of Scientists mm-hmm. and a second foundation of psychologists, which both endeavor to limit the impact of the fall of the empire uh, that, and, and you know, um, thereby ameliorate the consequences on its inhabitants. Um, it's an incredible series of novels and it was originally a collection of eight short stories written by Isaac Asimov between 1942 and 1950. Mm-hmm. Um, it was published in Astounding Stories of Super Science um, and that's the reason why the first couple of books on the Foundation series are not books per se but collections of short stories yep. uh, and much like you know science fiction later on the original trilogy wouldn't be the end of the story as I discovered. Um, in 1981 Asimov 30 years after he finished the Foundation Trilogy, <laughs> was persuaded by his publisher to write another sequel, and Foundation's Edge was published the following year. More books will come, including Foundation and Earth in 1986, and then two prequels. The later books, interestingly though, tied up into Asimov's canon to create a single universe that combines his robot series and Empire series mm-hmm. into the Foundation series. It was very popular and influential, and it was it was fascinating. Um, the Foundation series by itself is this unique blend of futuristic speculation and human history, with Asimov looking at our own past to envision the path that we may take once we finally reach the stars. For example, the Galactic Empire at the center of the series is based on the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. which of course famously fell. Um, as Asimov was writing this during World War II, we can also see those cataclysmic events echoed in the text. Um, indeed, the fall of empires resulting in violence and instability is a theme throughout the trilogy. Um, we see the end result of you know jingoism and the weaponization of patriotism, the disconnect of monarchies, and the essential futility of bravado in the face of war. The grand sweeping narrative of Foundation is a departure from so many so-called space operas, you know, because yeah. unlike Star Wars or Luke Skywalker, and even unlike Dune, the story is not focused on individual greatness. The message here is that social and political movements that genuinely change the world and that they and that will one day change the universe are not by single people. Mm-hmm. There are heroes in Foundation, but they are fulfilling their role in history and the march of the grand narrative would survive with or without them. But what psychohistory does is predict sweeping trends of economics, yeah. politics, religion, and, and so forth, like big social trends that will not be affected by one person or one great person or any number of great persons, you know. Um, it you just have no I- impact on on the flow of on the flow of politics, uh, but yet foundation is not a bleak narrative. The the novels focus on the role of the human spirit and how science and rationality can save the species, mm-hmm. not by creating weapons of war, but through the underlying philosophies of you know um, science and inquiry and innovation. Um, essentially, what we can do through psychohistory is and and learning from history is reduce the threats of tyrants with real solutions to the problems that uh, that they cause and exploit. 
Um, in an era where kind of you know science denial yeah. has become commonplace, mm-hmm. Asimov's message that science and education will always triumph over militarism and ignorance has kind of never been more relevant. And the influence of Foundation is is greatly felt through a lot of work from Star Trek all the way to Dune, as we mentioned. Yeah. Um, perhaps the, the Dune is probably the one that is most closely influenced by Foundation, although he has very different ideas about... <laughs> uh, Frank Herbert has very different ideas about how to save humanity. Yeah. Uh, but in, in, in terms of broad context, you know, this, this thousands of years, this chess game that's played for, for millennia, is very similar to Foundation, you know, this, this grand spanning narrative. Also the fact that you never stick with one single character, you know, every short story, every book jumps ahead a few hundred years, a few thousand years mm-hmm. to, 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 get to, new, to get to new characters and to see how the world and science and religions and politics have evolved over time yeah. due to the influence of the Foundation and the Second Foundation. So that's very cool. So I, I jumped into the Foundation series primarily because I wanted to hype myself up for the Foundation <laughs> TV series. Um, I was not aware at all. I don't know whether you were. I don't know whether you were. But I was not aware at all that it connected to the Robots and Empire series. So, I was only vaguely familiar with the Robot series because yeah. I had read um, one book called Case of Steel, which is the yeah. first uh, the Neil Oliver uh, detective story. Uh-huh. Uh, and I had, was not familiar at all with the Empire series at all. Then, at the end of Foundation and Earth... Um, I'm going to give a little bit of a spoiler here. Yeah. Uh, but the robot, Daniel Oliver, um, has survived for 3,000 years mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. is in the Foundation books. Uh, and that's when I was like, the fuck? Yeah. And then I was like, okay, 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 I get it. This kind of makes sense. Okay, okay, okay. The, the, the way the continuity is tied up is very neat. Uh-huh. Yep. But then it made me very dispirited. Not dispirited. Like, it made me very angry because <laughs> I was like... I was like, God damn it, I had just like 15 other books I need to read now. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, and which I did, and I'm glad I did. Uh, in fact, I chose to read those books before I read the Foundation prequels because the Foundation prequels, which were published later, yeah. tied even more closely to the yes. mythology of the robots and to the mythology of, of the Empire and all yeah. Um, Were you familiar with the shared continuity a- at all? Because uh, I wasn't. I was surprised. Okay, so I started out with the robot series. Right, yeah. because I was uh, I can't remember what was it like. I think secondary school. I was doing a robotics class. They were talking about like the laws of robotics and stuff like that. I was like, "Where is that from?" I think Asimov. Okay, let me go and check that out. Then I started reading the robot mm. series. Um, so I didn't realize that it was all connected. Like I didn't touch Empire at all until much much later. Um, mm. but so I started with that. I got through a ton of that, and then I remember being at the library, and they didn't have the next robot one that I needed like somebody had already borrowed it and I had to wait for it but they did have the first foundation book there so I picked it up so much Mm. in the same way you discovered that there was a continuity thing is the same way Mm. I discovered it but the difference is is that I never read Empire Mm. so I finished up foundation I finished up the rest of robots and I never touched Empire and I knew that there's this huge knowledge gap Right, mm. uh, for me, just in terms of that, because if Empire has the most books, uh, no, Empire only has three books, it actually right. has the least books. Ah, it has the yeah. least books, okay, cool. Yeah, so I, I didn't do Empire, and I think, like, at some point in there, I swapped over to Dune, um, right? Like, while, while doing all of that, uh, yeah, mm. so like it was just like this whole sci fi 
phase that I was going on to. Uh, but I know the exact point that you're talking about where you discover the continuity is. Like, um, where... Oh shit, what's his name? Uh, you just uh, mentioned uh, Daniel Oliver? Yeah, yeah. I, I remember reading that. I was like, oh no. Um, mm. Yeah, it was also because, like, I think... Was I already done with the book? I can't remember if, like, it, it tied up uh, as neatly for me as for you. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, or whether or not it was when I went back to the robot books, I was like, oh, wait, I know this character. Um, yep. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I totally feel you. Um, yep. Unfortunately, I, I did not have the, a compulsion. Like, it wasn't 15 extra books for me within a very short amount of time. Let's just put it that way. It was over, like, many, many more years than that. Um, I see. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, if you're aware of the robot series at first, you know, it's a lot of it, especially the first book, iRobot, takes place in the 21st century, the late 21st century. Yep. Um, the Empire series takes place uh, in the 37th century, mm-hmm. uh, 37th, 38th, and 39th century. The Foundation series takes place 5,000 years after that. Yep. Um, the idea that these universes are connected is insane to me, but it makes sense like, once I've read all the books. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the Empire series fills in a, a huge like you know, 3,000-year gap like, between the, the, the Foundation series and the uh, Robot series, yep. which is important like, in the grand scape of things. Because um, when I was reading the Empire series, a lot of it takes place on Trantor, uh-huh. which is the, the, the main seat of power of the Galactic Empire in the Foundation series. Yeah. But at that point in the Empire series, it was just a minor power in the galaxy. Yeah. Um, the Robot series was great, though. I mean, some of the best books that Isaac Asimov has ever written were in the Robot series. Yeah. I think um, The Positronic Man uh, is... Uh, it was adapted into a Robin Williams film, but I think like the the Positronic Man or the Bicentennial Man, yep. Bicentennial Man, yeah. is the best story that Isaac Asimov has ever written. Primarily because it's character driven. You know mm-hmm. how I like characters. Yeah. Um, so Andrew Martin as a character was probably the most fleshed out character that he's ever written, and that For was sure. very very good. For sure. Um, the rest of it is more broad based sociology, um, psychology, mm-hmm. and politics, mm-hmm. which I don't mind. I re- I really really liked it and. I am more. I lead more towards Isaac Asimov's view of science and rationality Ooh. as the as the fixing of the universe, yeah. more so than than Herbert's view. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of, I kind of, I I don't mean to support the Benny Jesuit, but I kind of do. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. If I if I support the foundation, so yeah, uh, there you go. Um, totally if you're interested in. Mm. If you're interested in these books, begin with iRobot first. Oh yeah, um, I was just about yeah. To begin say. with iRobot. Yeah, it, it's a, it's a, it comprises of nine short stories about the robot set in the twenty first century because that that's the building block for all the later books. Yep. And then follow up with Positronic Man, um, and then watch uh, and then not watch sorry, and then read a novel called Nemesis, which is outside of all three series. Yep. But it's also inside the universe. Yep. Uh, and then you get into the the new Oliver um. Uh, books set in the 35th century The Case of Steel The Naked Sun The Robots of Dawn and then Robots and Empire mm. which is, which ties into the three Empire books which mm. then tie into the Foundation books um, it's a lot of work and it's very cool uh, but it is a lot of work oh, yeah. um, right at the end of it there is a book <laughs> called The End The End of Eternity uh. which is a, a 1955 book about um, if you watch Loki, it's basically about the TVA. Yeah. Uh, and it's a story about how the Foundation universe came into being as the only universe. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's also very interesting. It's not, ne- it's not necessary that, that you read The End of Eternity. For sure. Uh, but it's just like a nice multiversal book 
that explains why there is no multiverse in the foundation stories and yeah. no aliens as well because the quote unquote TVA I I I the in the books it's called eternity lah but yeah. I'm going to count on the TVA <laughs> has chosen has chosen a particular sacred timeline shall we say uh for this to go on lah which is the foundation timeline yeah. um interesting far reaching sprawling uh some of the best and most innovative science fiction concepts I've ever read came from Isaac Asimov. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I didn't know until I read up more of it that Isaac Asimov was the first writer to invent the term galactic empire, yep. the concept of it. Yep. Um, I found that it must have been groundbreaking, and it was because you know without it, there's no Star Wars and no Snow Dune and all of that. Um, I will talk a little bit more about the Foundation TV show um, in the next episode of Journal Equality. But I will say that the Foundation TV show, besides the basic premise, has almost no resemblance to Foundation at all. So if you want to get the true Foundation experience, read the Foundation novels. Um, yeah, that's that's my mini review of Isaac Asimov's Robot Empire slash Foundation oh. Universe. You want you, do you want to add in anything before we end? Oh uh, no, no, I think you pretty much covered everything. I I think like uh, having uh, having a direction to go when tackling something of that kind of magnitude with that many books is really really helpful to just uh, but definitely start with iRobot for sure. Yeah. Yeah, uh, iRobot sets you up with the basic ground rules without which you won't understand the coming uh, robot uh, books because so much of it is about the three laws yep. uh, and, and the understanding of that. You know, it's very cool. Like um, Foundation and Earth, you know, I mean, there was a, even before the new Oliver came onto the scene, uh-huh. they, they visited forgotten planets that had been abandoned a long time ago. So they visited stuff like Aurora yep. and, and, and planets that you found in the Oliver series. And at first I was like, Okay, maybe Solaria and uh, Aurora are like <laughs> common names that he's just using again. Yeah. And then you're like, oh fuck, these are the actual planets that Oliver was on. I was like, oh god damn it, I gotta read again. And yeah. don't get to that point. So read the robot books first, yes, read yes. the Empire books first, and then read the Foundation books. Um, it's worth your time. It's a lot of work, but it's worth your time. Take yeah. your time to it. You don't you don't have to you don't have to run through it in three weeks like I did. You know, take three years if you want to. Yep. But I will say it is worth it. And that's it for this episode of Genre Equality. Uh, We will be back uh, covering film noir Mm -hmm. and Asian horror in two episodes of Behold in the coming month, uh, as well as Genre Equality 47, which will be coming a month from now. Uh, A lot of cool things to talk about there as well, because, you know, what we do in the shadows, uh, we'll be ending its third season. The, uh, The premiere season of What If has been... An uneven ride, but let's talk about it too. Yep, yep. Uh, Ven- Venom 2 is, is going to be out in the cinema soon. Let there be carnage. Uh, Woody Harrelson as Cletus Cassidy. Um, I, we didn't have the highest opinion on Venom 1, but uh, we <laughs> did think it was ent- entertaining yeah. at the very least. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Of course, I'll talk about Foundation. I'll talk about the newest Halloween movie, Halloween Kills. Um, I thought we'd be talking about Violet Evergarden, the movie. Oh, yeah. And lots more, man. What are you most excited to talk about next month? Uh, I've already yeah Violet Evergarden for sure. I'm a big fan. Yep. I still think it's it's severely underrated. Um, and mm-hmm. people are sleeping on it, for sure. Um, Injustice is also coming out. Yeah, it's a DC animated one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm interested to see how they're gonna do Injustice this time around. I've seen some of the stills. Um, mm-hmm. looks interesting. Like the art, the artwork looks pretty great. Uh, for yep. that and uh, yeah, what we do in the shadows, I have not caught up yet. So I'm excited Sweet. to do that. Um, the first two seasons have been a kind of a wild ride. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I mean, it's it's one of those like series that the premise may get tired after a while. 
you know. Mm-hmm. But it hasn't yet, so I'm curious to see how they, they continue to keep it up. Mm, but yeah, that's, that's essentially it. it. Uh, I've got a lot of like things to pick your brain about what if, I think, as well. Um, sure. Just the, like where 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 it, it stands in the MCU as just kind of a, a, a product, right? And what it means for what they're trying to do within the MCU itself. Um, yeah. So we'll discuss all of that at the next genre equality um, episode forty-seven. Definitely, man. Um, till then, uh, please remember to like, subscribe, and follow us on YouTube, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. We're available on Mixcloud, which is our traditional home as well. Yep. Uh, everywhere you can find a podcast, you will find genre equality and our sister show, Behold. Uh, so you know, give us a like and follow. It really helps with the algorithm and it helps other people find our podcast. Yeah. Um, till then, this has been Hit Zero. Hi, Maisa. Goodbye, guys. Ciao.